Hello, welcome to a special episode of the Great Crowbar Free to our patrons, of course. Um, we'll basically use these to talk to people that we've just really want to chat to because we've all been journalists at some point, so we, we relentlessly have to talk to people, that's the law. So today I'm joined by Christian Donlan, who, uh, not to make him blush, but he's one of my favourite games writers. <laughs> um, it's, it's true, it's true. That's the sound um, of a blush. That's, a, that's <laughs> erupting in my, in my living room. Uh, you, can, you can find uh, his words uh, on Eurogamer. Frankly, uh, if he wasn't working at Eurogamer, I would have hired him for PC Gamer instantly. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that all aside, uh, we thought we'd have a, a, like a nice chat about video games, what we've been playing recently, and then we're going to move on to talk about Rogue, which Chris, you've had, you have a lot of perspective on, and me as a you know a true millennial <laughs> doesn't necessarily understand the legacy of it, even though I've played lots of roguelikes and we can sort of examine that. So that's quite fun. So how are you, Chris? I'm really well. How are you doing? Are you, are you okay? How are you dealing with, um, you know, lockdown and all that stuff? Well, I, I, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah, I assumed surprising. we were all sort of happy introverts sort of finally getting everything we wanted. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, it's really taught incredible me not that. Oh, really? Oh gosh! Yeah, so I find that like, yeah, I just sort of have a desperate need to talk to people now. So I always thought that I just wanted to be a shut-in. <laughs> Do you find yourself having um, quite intense conversations with people you have never, like, so uh, postman? I have uh, some quite intense, <laughs> just very not intense in the sense of like you know family secrets coming out or anything, but just I'll be speaking to him and I'll realise that you just get to the heart of things quite quite quickly with people that you wouldn't normally before. You've, you, I find myself telling people all sorts of things that I wouldn't have before. I made I that sound sinister, have. like where the body's buried. It's not like that. but <laughs> I, I definitely have that with um, like Amazon delivery men. Yes, yes. Or, uh, delivery women. I'm just like, please talk to me for 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I just really want that human interaction. You should get Tesco's uh, or other supermarket deliveries because that... Yeah, you, I don't even need the stuff they're delivering. No, <laughs> but then you've got them for like like five minutes. They're, 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 God, this does sound sinister. <laughs> it does sound quite... sounds a bit wrong, doesn't it? It does, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm exactly the same. But the end is in sight, perhaps. And in the meantime, I've had lots of chance to play loads of video games. Yeah. Um, which, luckily, I'm quite happy to do so what have you been playing recently so um i've been trying to say, so i've just finished reviewing immortals uh, phoenix rising ah, yes. and i actually don't really want to talk about that <laughs> because it's one of those games where i did struggle to kind of say anything about it uh, it's 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 well, really pleasant and it's not enormously interesting and i just for years i thought i'll never find a game that i don't have something to say about and when people mm. said oh i have got nothing to say about this game i was like oh you you amateur what do you mean and then this one came along and really i had very little to say about it have you uh, have you, uh, have you played darksiders one um <laughs> yes yes was darksiders your was that the moment for you um the first one definitely although i'd actually quite like the second one right I, I think i'm in a sort of weird niche corner of the uh, the industry in that respect I think I think then I think I back then I still had a I think I I think I summoned something to say about that one. I remember it, it had very funny names for the difficulty levels, and I think ah. if you have something like that early on, it allows you to keep going through sort of the. It gives you that sort of energy at the beginning, doesn't it? That you can kind of carry through. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What I have been playing recently, which I've really been enjoying and finding very interesting, is a game called Kronos. Have you played this? I've not actually. No, it's got a not very memorable name. I'm being really brutal today, aren't I? That's that game's not very interesting. Yeah. this game doesn't have a very interesting name. No, Put the game, nails in. There's a it's game good. called Kronos, and I played it on uh, Oculus. I had this incredible week when Oculus came into the office. However long ago that well, that must have been 2018 or something like that, and um, no one else wanted it. So for a week, I just pinched it and and played everything that was out on it. And Kronos was this really it's sort of a Dark Soulsy kind of um, dungeon crawling game. I think it's actually weirdly made by Gunfire Games, who were oh, the people who made Darksiders, part, part yeah. of sort of X Vigil. And the VR version is really an interesting game because it was the first third person VR game I'd ever played, and I was fascinated by the way that the camera is. So you're controlling this little adventurer with a sword and shield, but you're also the camera watching him and i mean in most games you're the camera but you never i never really thought about it until then and it was it was that weird sense almost like um 
trying to use chopsticks, you know, of kind of controlling two different people when I'd never really realized that that's what you do in games before. It's funny, my daughter's learning to play uh, games at the moment and um, she's going through that stage of moving one control stick and then moving, she'll have like a pad and she'll move one yeah. control and then move the other a little bit. And at some point it's all going to kind of solidify in her mind and she'll do them both. But it reminded me of that a little bit. So really, I've made it sound really boring by talking about something really boring about it, but it's actually like a really inventive sort of uh, dungeon crawler that I do. And it's just come out on Steam without VR and it's still quite interesting, still still enjoying it. That's really good. I, I don't think that's boring because I think that's a, a thing that every I, I take that completely for granted that I just instinctively move the right stick to point the camera where I want to see. But it's definitely a barrier for new players or people learning to get into games and use control pads. Oh yeah, the um, controller. The controller is terrifying when you. Mm. I um there was a um sorry I'm very I'm very I'm clearly in a quite a discursive mood tonight sorry but there's a um. <laughs> There's a cookbook I reviewed a, a while ago. It's a cookbook of, of gamer food. It was called Snack oh, yes. Hacks. And um, the woman who wrote it was in Battlestar Galactica. And I cannot remember who, what her name is. I'm so sorry. What a weird combination of things. I know. It's really strange. But she'd, she'd also done um, voiceovers for video games. And she would hold the controller in these carefully staged photographs for this cookbook. And you you sensed all of the terror of the person who's holding a controller for the first time, <laughs> you know, with that many two. When you explain to people, oh, it's got two joysticks on, and it's got four triggers, and it's got yeah. you know, it's 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 got two joysticks and a D pad, and it, it's just it gets. It is mad actually when you actually break it down, <laughs> isn't it? Yet. But I think just seeing Leon, my daughter, sort of using it for the first time makes you think actually we have not made this stuff easy. And then you look at her with. Um, ios games and it's just instinctive i have like yeah. that, that story everyone who has kids in the 21st century has that story of them going up to the tv and trying to pinch to enlarge the screen and leon's definitely yeah. done that it's uh, anyway sorry complete yeah i've uh, I visited um, some very good friends and met their um two-year-old for the first time and uh, they have like peppa pig kind of on repeat on their screen uh, and it's amazing how like uh, she's just completely occasionally transfixed by it she'll just sort of like wander oh, yeah. up to it like eyeball to eyeball with the screen and, and sort of like touch it and poke it and it's i think that is that's a fascinating i, I mean i never knew to do that i used to uh, granted i used to watch the same episode of uh, thunderbirds over and over again yeah but it's a bit different i was wondering this is a complete aside but i was wondering when when you lose that desire to see the same thing over and over again i remember as a kid like if you like watching an episode of the adams family 20 times yeah and you're just like what what happens to that like i saw knives out a couple of months ago and i really enjoyed it but i haven't watched it every weekend since which is what i would have done when i was a kid i don't know anyway sorry you can tell it i'm treating you like my amazon delivery driver so <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna stop talking about that now anyway. we're all going through it we're all going through it that's the thing um no i have, I have exactly the same thing where i used to watch um, there was one particular episode of star trek where uh the, the original series where they discover a giant amoeba in space oh wow and they drift into it uh, and almost nothing happens for 40 minutes and then they just reverse out of it. Uh, and I, I must have watched that 100 times as, as a kid. I think like kids have sometimes like obsessive tendencies. What do you where... think it was? Do you think it was the sort of the narrative sparseness or was it the, like the amoeba? What was, what was pulling was you back the, each time? It was the imagery, I think. And right. just, I, I think I was getting a formative love of spaceships at that point. And uh, uh, also, the, I didn't know what an amoeba was. Right. So the idea of this giant blob that was a kind of proto-biological you know, entity that was just rendered enormous for the sake of a, a science fiction show. Like, I could never understand any of that. So it was just like purely the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I sort of just wanted to understand it. And never, never could because I was too young. <laughs> I was, we were watching. This is my last aside. I promise you. We watched. My wife and I watched one of the Star Trek, the recent, the remake film, the, not remake, the reboot films the other night. And I was thinking, mm. God, the Enterprise is so beautiful, but it's such an odd, yeah. odd design. When did? I wonder at what point in my life I realised it was beautiful. You know, what point it sort of started to make sense? Because if you look at it, it's got all these bits. This is not an original thought. I appreciate. But it's got all these bits sort of stuck on to a central kind of pole. Yeah. But somewhere along the line, it, you just realize it's got this incredible grace to it and sort of fragility, but sort of, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. This is why you can edit all this stuff out, can't you, by sort of asides about 
Star Trek and everything. I, I think my, uh, my King Leah moments as, or whatever. Besides about Star Star Trek, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you've watched Star Trek Discovery again. I'm, I'm continuing this tangent, um, but it sort of like it can warp through space in a different way to other ships, and the way it does it is that it sort of like flips sort of horizontally like a fidget spinner. Oh my god! The weirdest, like. It looks so so silly, but I love it every lo- time it happens. Oh, I love that stuff. I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sort of increasingly sort of in my mid forties or whatever, drawn back to that sort of space, that naval naval space space. Oh, stuff. for sure. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, sorry, sorry. I don't know what's having a every, meltdown. Every, every, meltdown every battle podcast. on in Star Trek is uh, very much on a two D plane. Yes, which, uh, that's gosh. No, God, I've got to think about that. I'm going to have to think about that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> The, the naval analogy is very good, actually, especially especially the um, hierarchy on board and that kind of stuff. I suppose, you know, so, yeah. No, yeah, you know, sorry, captain going down with the ship, all that stuff. Yeah, there's a big moment in the, the one we watched last night, which is literally about the captain going down with the ship. Um, and it happens about every twenty minutes in Star Trek. The problem, the problem with, with the one last night is Sulu, the best, obviously the best character, and played by John Cho, who is the best actor. He's got nothing to do in that film. It, it was the second one. And I think the only thing he does at one point is he puts on a, he says something dramatic and then puts on a CGI uh, sort of um, seatbelt. And that was his moment. And he must have been reading through the script the first time he got it and thinking, you know, what's in it for Sulu this time around? <laughs> and there was, there's just nothing. What a waste. I was, I was... Well, at least he didn't, didn't get like a you know, harrowing death scene. <laughs> but then he would have at least, oh, he would have smashed that though. He would have. I mean, he'd have loved it. I'm he sure. would have, oh gosh, no one. I'm also, not... you know, knowing Star Trek, they could just bring anyone. It's like comic books. They could bring anyone back whenever Absolutely. they want to. I mean, so, I mean... He, at least he had the seatbelt, the sort of clicky, clicky, <laughs> futuristic seatbelt. The only anyway yeah i go on about this forever <laughs> but i'll stop no no i want it so i was the last point on this I, i'm always interested in what science fiction films don't think they need to update so there is mm. um actually i'm tying this back to video games brilliantly there's uh, one of the ea star wars games one of the ones that dice made the shooters there's a bit where you're going through an empire sort of um government building or like this fancy build it's like baroque building and there's all this furniture under dust sheets and you're like dust sheets in star wars really <laughs> but then you're like well maybe maybe dust sheets are sort of perfect technology and maybe seat belts are like just really i don't know this i always think it's really interesting the limits of animate uh, the limits of imagination in science fiction it's like uh, yeah, it's like uh, yeah, using pencils in space to write. Yeah, you know, is that absolutely. is that all that added really? Um, I also think about uh, uh, something that's very funny about science fiction films is that they often make ordinary objects try to be really sort of futuristic, and I'm talking about wine glasses. <laughs> oh, God. and in, in one case, like uh, a woman who, uh, in a very very important crucial scene in the movie, is holding a trowel that is so over designed. <laughs> 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 as to be actually useless like you can't redesign a trowel it does what it does i um, love it you know, that's definitely a, a thing it's like giving this sort of sense of futurism and that was someone's week someone's week was like, okay <laughs> got to do the trowel this week designing that yeah it's got it on the whiteboard it's sort of like oh shit trowel deadline anyway i think someone was uh, like troweling etsy desperate <laughs> for just the weirdest trowel design got that into the film oh i thought it was a time travel film i can't remember what it was doesn't matter you, you see it in all science fiction films. It's it's very funny. It's like 40 chess in Star Trek as well. It's like... Did, that, yeah, anyway, sorry. I was going to ask you a question, but I won't because we're going to be talking... No, no, no. We'll be talking about Star Trek forever. And I don't... The limits of Star Trek are basically... I know about the two films I watched last week. So I, I will run out of stuff very quickly. <laughs> yeah. I, I say I'm not a Star Trek nerd, but based on the last 14 minutes, <laughs> uh, I might be wrong about that. I think but, there's uh, a degree of like, osmosis around Star Trek, just yes. like like d- yeah. dilithium crystals and things like that. Everyone has yes. a, certain, a certain level of awareness of it. You can't really avoid it. Sorry, this could be a nightmare for you to edit. I do apologize. It really is. No, trust me, you've not heard the Raw Great and Crow podcast. <laughs> This is this is nothing. Okay, okay. So I'll reset by asking you about Rogue, I think. Right. Unless there's anything I want to honk on about. Yeah, no, tell me, because I don't... Yeah, tell me about something you played, because I don't... I, I, do you know, I, I feel like I'm increasingly stuck in these smaller and smaller sort of um, orbits around the games I like, so it's always nice to hear something mm. else. 
Uh, so recently I've been revisiting GameCube era games. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I picked the wrong console way back when. I know, I you could... picked the right console. If you picked GameCube, you picked the right console. But, uh, the PS2 was there and it was so like, there's so many rich different things you could play on it. Instead, like, I got the GameCube and recently on Switch, I absolutely love the Switch. I think it's amazing. I've got the Mario trilogy, the 3D Mario trilogy, which is um, Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, and Super Mario Galaxy, the first one. Sadly, not the second one. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating just sort of like rediscover how they absolutely nailed 3D platforming. Oh, yeah. By making it just slightly sluggish like mario's got momentum and yes it's slippery in a way and you have to control that and manage it and just just some sort of masterful kind of play testing and you know iteration i'm sure went into that feeling of weight and pulling off acrobatics he's amazingly fun to sort of throw around it isn't it i remember someone told me about mario 64 years ago back when i was at university when it had just come out someone told me a story about the people who made it and they made it sound so um they were like oh they had to make this game and then they had to rush it and all the developers just moved into the office and slept under their desks and this was in like 1999 i was hearing this story and i was like oh how romantic and lovely (laughs) how how great that is that these people got to live in the place where they were making this game and you know and of course now you hear that and you think god that's terrible (laughs) yeah crunched to death absolutely times have changed but I had that slightly sort of sort of snow falling outside, sort of uh, romantic bullshit idea about it. But it is. What do you? Which which of the three do you like the most? Sorry, I know it's a slight artificial question. But. I kind of. It's a really. It's a toss up between Galaxy and sixty four. Right. Uh, it really is. There's, I think there's something just brilliantly tactile about sixty four that it's easy to overlook based on the kind of low poly graphics, even though they they make that work really well. I think that the sense of movement. I wonder if they were compensating for the very strange design of the N64 controller. <laughs> That's the weird three-pronged thing. Yeah. Uh, and like whether they wanted to kind of like, they put extra effort into making the sensitivity of the movement feel better because of that. I'm not sure that's pure, just like guesswork. Um, but there's something about it that just like moving around the world is just innate, inherently pleasurable, really fun. I can't quite put my finger on it. It's got a wonderful, uh, yeah, the, the hub is, I remember a friend telling me about getting up onto the roof to meet Yoshi and it was this sort of, yeah, this secret that you just thought, I'm never going to get there. You know, like before YouTube, there were these moments in games where you thought, I guess I'll never see that. And of course now you can see, you can see it all, but um, yeah. Oh gosh. What do you think of Sunshine? Well, like uh, Sunshine was the one that was, was not, not on that list. So I thought like, what, what's your yeah. thing there? The weird, so Sunshine was originally the one I played the most on GameCube because I was at a stage where I could only afford like one, like save you got pocket money, get this one game, have to, have to play it to death. And I think that fundamentally, all of the kind of I like, uh, there's kind of there's hints of Splatoon in there in the way yes. that oh, goo works, and the way that you clean stuff up, or like or the way that stuff spreads, and the way goo works. But uh, they hadn't. I don't think they nailed the controls for actually disposing of the goo the kind of squirting from your backpack to actually clean it all up uh, it should be like a my, at its best it's a delightful game about cleaning things up <laughs> <laughs> but that's not quite what i want from mario it didn't kind of like gel with it at all even though it's quite a nice environment and also uh, it's less mysterious than for example in mario 64 you jump into paintings and go to different worlds and sunshine you do do that to an extent you do teleport to different places but it doesn't feel the it didn't feel the same for some reason yeah i know exactly what you mean. what's galaxy like after all this time it's uh absolutely delightful right in terms of the sheer amount of it's the ability to change scene from one four minute section to one four minute section mm-hmm. by just blasting off from one sphere to another is outstanding the I think the, again, it's like you, you do struggle with the camera because you're going upside down on orbs, um, <laughs> and then having to do you know platforming challenges, and you can correct it with the right stick and everything. Uh, but at the same time, it, it does feel a bit clunky, um, and some of the planets and some of the levels are just incredibly irritating. Right, <laughs> should probably have just been cut from the game because it's, <laughs> it's a plenty big game. God, it's they huge, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. They could have cut a bunch of stuff out if they wanted to. And one of the things I always remember f- um, from uh, developers of World of Goo was I think they said they cut like 30% of the levels they tried to make just because 
a shorter, sharper experience that worked would be a better game. I love that. And I, yeah. Which I think is very true for games like this, particularly games that have very distinct levels. Uh, and I could think of that for like even stuff like Devil May Cry 5. There's, there are just three levels that I would absolutely just chop out. And it was, I'd, and it wouldn't make the game any worse. It made the game better, in fact, because you don't have to endure them. Um, but sometimes like killing your darlings, I think, is a yeah. very difficult thing for creative people to do. Uh, and I think that's quite a dilemma when it comes to game development. I wish they could, at the, po- at the point at which you're asked to kill them, I wish they could kind of take you 10 years into the future where you feel so much better that they're gone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, oh yeah. Have you played uh, Titanfall 2? I have, I love it. I think that is one of those games where I would struggle to cut any bits of it. Like, I agree with that. And yeah. It's so, um, it feels like they went through that. It feels like they, I'm completely imagining how it was made now, which is ridiculous, but it feels like they had 30 levels and then they said, no, let's just go with like six or seven, but let's make them all the best ones. I think so. I'm just so happy with the fantastic six hour campaign. Yes. With no filler. Yes. Absolutely. I, I love that now. Maybe that's a result of like being past 30 and like not having quite the time that I had as a teenager or whatever. But I do think like there's, there's a, there's a beauty to the sharpness and the, the critical eye on the part of the developers to recognize what works and what doesn't and to lead you through the experience and pace it almost like a film. Uh, I just really admire that. Yeah. Elastica's last single was one minute and 17 seconds long. And uh, I always felt like, God, there's nowhere left for them to go unless they're going to release like a 20 second song. Uh, you know, and still it, listen though. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. I mean, but it was just it was a beautiful sort of, um, I love it when people realize they don't need, like, you, you get that sometimes people just realize they don't. It actually brings us really quite nicely onto Rogue, but like that sort of thing of the things that you don't need, you just jettison them, and sometimes it's it's really beautiful. Sometimes it's really the opposite, and it feels almost like this crazy indulgence to just kind of, sparseness can feel like a kind of indulgence, but when it's done mm. right, it's just magical. Yeah. I think regarding the kind of length thing, there's slightly contorted sense you know connection between value and length oh god between different customers yes um and for me i see this particularly in films which i'm always like cut this in half <laughs> yes it's so three and a half hours cut this in half <laughs> yeah films are creep it feels like films are creeping up in in length i mean i say i, I sound like i'm a hundred you know when i <laughs> oh films are getting long again but it does seem like there aren't I, I, there aren't that many sto- films that need to be as long as they are. I don't know. We, I completely agree. We went to see um, uh, two thousand. I've told this story so many times. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I went to see two thousand and one, which is my favourite movie, obviously because I'm a pretentious idiot. But I went to see it at uh, the Duke of York's in Brighton a, a couple of years ago, and we took a bunch of people from work. And I, I make that sound as if they didn't want to go, and actually a lot of them didn't want to go. Sort of some of the, the uh, younger people on staff. And it was just really interesting to watch that film in a cinema. And I've only ever seen it on TV before. Um, and in a, I, uh, have you seen 2001 or am I? Uh... I've seen it many times. Okay, yeah. great. Because I thought the danger of retelling a story, which is of interest to absolutely nobody. But um, it, at the cinema, I don't know if you've ever watched it at the cinema, but it was completely different. It was, it was, it, it moved along so quickly. Mm. Um, and I don't know how, but it was just like you could see that every shot in the um, in the opening scene, which when I was a kid, because it doesn't have any spacecrafts in it, that bit is that the, the moon watcher sequence really drags when you're a kid. Um, yeah. But every shot moves the story forward, and when you get into space, it's just I it was it was so zippy. I came out. I went with Chris Bratt actually, and I came out. I said I can't believe how fast it was, and just the right length. You know, this film which. Normally I watch in sort of two sittings uh, on TV, you know, you sort of drift off or read a magazine. It is my favorite film, but it's sort of almost hypnotically boring on television. But yeah. in the cinema, it was absolutely thrilling. And the, the length of it was perfect. And also I walked out of the cinema and um, Emma Kent, who's um, uh, I think probably about 20 years younger than I am and who works at Eurogamer with me and is a brilliant news writer, I forgot that she had never seen this movie. She hadn't seen it a hundred times. We walked out of the cinema and I was like, what did you think? And she was like, he turns into like a baby at the end, like a <laughs> giant baby. And I was like, I forgot like that. You didn't know that was coming. <laughs> so it's, it's such a weird ending. Also, it's about like three or four films in one. As I well, love it. I love it. Which but, is, yeah. 
Anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's part of the reason why it can zip along is because you're changing the environment I, I, about every 20 minutes. I'd love to understand why it felt so fast at the cinema. Just It was exactly the same mm. cut. And it's like, someone once explained to me, and I've forgotten all of the reasons why, but why films on planes make you really emotional. In fact, anything on a plane, anything you're watching on a plane makes you really emotional. I've had that for sure. Yeah. And like you come back and you go, oh, I saw a really good film on a plane. And you have to, you, you're never sure whether you actually did or whether it's just that you're on a plane and maybe it boxed you or something like that. But I, I don't, I'd love to know why film length feels so different depending on, anyway, sorry. We're really, uh, 27 minutes we've recorded and I've just rambled. <laughs> like, I thought, God, I'm not going to be able to say anything. And then I haven't shut up. I'm so sorry, Tom. It, it does apply to games though as well like um uh, i completely agree with the uh plane thing by the way because uh i had a very strange reaction to the um formula one racing film rush uh, <laughs> it, um, and I, I, I don't own a car never driven a car <laughs> i care about cars uh but there's a bit why I, uh, where a guy gets into a crash and has a procedure and i felt suddenly like sick and dizzy oh, just wow. watching it i was like I, and i'm immune to gore normally right. <laughs> honestly but it was I've just, watched so many horror films have you seen it was weird have you seen rush not on a plane after uh, i've not actually I I, i'd be interested to see if i have a different reaction can to you scene, yeah watch it watch it at home and then email me the results because i need to i'll do a control this. experiment because we watched the other guys and i said i saw this film called the other guys and it was really funny but i did see it on a plane and then we got we watched it at home and it was still really funny so i was like oh, i guess it wasn't quite as funny but it was still you know i want to yeah. see what rush does to you interesting no yes I, I'll, I'll offer myself up as a guinea pig for this one definitely because i'm curious too i'd recommend anyone to follow uh bfi the british film institute if you're in the uk because they regularly do pre-covid but post-covid as well they'll do fresh screenings of classics and that's a great way that's how i saw blade runner on oh, a wow. big screen for the first time oh my gosh wow uh and Again, that's a film that's very different on the big screen. Do you uh, know what? That's another film which I never watch in one sitting. I love it, but I never watch it in, in one sitting at home because it is, again, it's hypnotically boring on television. It's strangely paced as well. Like yeah. everything pretty much happens in the last half an hour. <laughs> and everything for the first part is just imagery. And that's kind of, that's a tradition that the second film also stuck to. Right. I haven't seen the second one actually because I can't, I, I have to negotiate with people in this house as to what we watch. <laughs> Otherwise I have to watch it on my own. It's a bit sad. So I understand. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I really like it actually, but uh, purely from my like, imagery right. perspective. Uh, and also I could just w- watch Brian Gosling all day because he's, even, even though most of his acting is just sort of staring into space. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. Last aside, I promise. But have you seen <laughs> The Nice Guys, which I think is arguably in my top five movies ever at the moment? Oh, well, no, I've not seen that. Oh, my God. It's it's Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. And I appreciate it. I've just made that sound like the, the worst movie ever. Strange, what a strange combination. 1970s detectives in California, in LA. And it's clearly not filmed in LA, apart from a few books. It's clearly <laughs> filmed in like Atlanta. Of course. But. It's extraordinarily good, and it's written by Shane, written and directed by Shane Black, and it's just, uh, uh, oh god! Every time I watch it, I'm like, this movie is so. I is this movie ever going to stop getting better? But it never does. It's just really, oh, wow. and it makes you. I don't know. I saw a different side to Gosling. This is of no interest to anyone listening, so please do <laughs> scissor all of that stuff out. But um, yeah, do watch it. I think it's a a mini masterpiece. I've got a bonus film podcast. It's all good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is the last thing I'll say on it, I absolutely promise. Uh, but um, r- bringing up Russell Crowe, uh, his denouement in Les Mis uh, was filmed on a very famous, uh, the Portney Bridge in Bath. And every single time I walk past it, I think of him honking <laughs> his, his final song <laughs> terribly into the wilderness. Oh, my God. Uh, what, did you, uh, yeah, what did you guys do to deserve that? That's <laughs> was much I wish it, I'd seen it in person. Was much of it filmed in Bath? Uh, I've, no, it's that's the only bit I recognise, and it was so kind of colour shifted, you'd almost not notice okay, it. Okay, right. But it, it's weird in Bath because it still looks like an old timey <laughs> place. I was just walking down the road like six months ago, and then the, the a street was covered in hay, and there were two people dressed in sort of Victorian attire ride, riding horses, and they just rode off as cameras pursued them at, at speed. And that's just the sort of thing that happens in Bath. It's lucky you <laughs> saw the cameras because you would have thought like, oh God, COVID has really, yeah, I haven't God, been in town in a long said. time. Yeah, God, what's going on? It's like, am I going mad? 
Right, that's <laughs> 31 minutes of not talking about video games. I'm so sorry. Let's, uh, no, it's brilliant. I let's, greatly enjoyed it. Let's bring it home. Um, uh, so, uh, Chris, um, I think you, like, you really want to talk about Rogue, because I know you've written about Rogue recently. It's obviously a formative part of your gaming history. So I, I wanted to, like, what you, you know, why you enjoy it, how it kind of relates to modern game design, um, and why you love it, basically. I'll try it. Yeah, I've got nothing that intelligent to say about it, but I'll, I'll do my best. So I I uh, played Rogue, Rogue for the first time a while ago when I was working for Alex Wiltshire, um, oh, yeah. doing stuff for Edge Online back in the day. And um, I, we were playing a lot of roguelikes at that point. And, every, they, you know, Splunky had come out and everyone was really excited about this way of, you know, before lots of, before like four out of five, I got to sound like a really old person, I'm going to say that. Um, you know, we were playing a lot of roguelikes back in, in that point. And I think there was an interest in what the original one was like. And I remember downloading it and sort of prodding through it, almost sort of like, you know, jabbing at my keyboard with like an the one extended finger and not really understanding any of it. And I'd made the mistake of sort of reading quite a lot about it beforehand and sort of learning about how the, the, you know, this fun, this foundational thing of the original roguelikes, the world only takes a step when, when you do and stuff like that. And I really just bounced off. I think I, I think I wrote something quite polite about it, but I, what I wish I'd written is like, I don't understand this. I don't, you always wish looking back you'd be more truthful and sort of like i I wish i just oh sorry my cat's here um (laughs) i wish i said like i don't understand this i don't really get what uh, what, what's special about it um and then oh years and years past i played a lot of roguelikes because we've gone through a period where there are just a lot of roguelikes knocking around and they're all so different now as well they all feel you know um they're all exploring their own little avenues and then sometimes you realize oh my god this thing I was playing all along, it's been a roguelike and I never would have known it. And I, I remember speaking to the, um, one of the, one of the, cre- the two creators of Toe Jam and Earl for an edge piece. And him, he said to me, Oh, you know, of course, Toe Jam and Earl is just rogue. And I, I, thought, I suddenly thought, Oh my God, of course it is. You know, the way the maps are drawn and the objects, you don't know what's in them, the presence you get, you don't know whether, whether it's going to be rocket snake skates or whether it's going to send you back five levels. It's really classically rogue, but just changing it into that sort of hip hop aliens and sort of MTV sitcom style they had absolutely transformed it. And I was thinking, so I mean, when rogue came out again on steam, which is a couple of months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, they re-released the original, not quite the original, but sort of a really early version of it, a really early up. So it, I, I wish I had the Edge magazine here, but they're all back in the office. There was a making of Rogue in Edge years ago, and I've forgotten everything that was in it. But um, I looked it up recently, and it was created in uh, UC Santa Cruz, which was where my sister was born. My sister wasn't born in UC Santa Cruz, but she was born in Santa Cruz. Wasn't born mm. in the university. That would have been. Exciting, <laughs> unprecedented. But um, I, so I was really sort of one of those things where, oh my God, we used to live in Santa Cruz and this is where this incredible bit of gaming history came from. And then it was on a, um, I think, sorry, I, kn- I know you know all this. I'm just doing that terrible mansplainy bit people do at the beginning of things, aren't I? But um, it was released on um, the Unix, the sort of Berkeley Unix system. And I think it was even included in, in one of the sort of source codes. So it was actually part of the, you know, the sort of OS for a while was rogue back on the days when it was all those sort of shared terminals and you have to ask a professor if you can borrow the computer for half an hour and the computer's the size of a room or whatever. But, um, but so I was playing it recently and it just absolutely gripped me. I played it. It's, it's like two pounds. So it's the kind of thing you buy really without that sort of hand wringing of like, well, can I afford this? You know, covid am i going to be am i going to be employed in a year blah 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 with, with two pounds you just kind of go oh I'll, I'll i'll see what this game is about it's about change and i was absolutely i've just been transfixed by it um and i can't stop playing it and i wasn't planning to write anything about it and normally you know one of my classic rules about writing something about it is is it, if it's a game i've already bought uh, can i expense it by writing about it um and for, yes, it, always yes. <laughs> yes. But for this one, it really wasn't really wasn't worth it. it was like I, I was like, oh god, I guess I really have to want to write about this one. Yeah. Um, but I it's it's it was so exciting. 
playing this game is so exciting. And um, I went through all the, these different sort of quite tedious stages of it. But the, the first one was like, it just didn't feel like um, a roguelike at all. It didn't, it felt like this completely original new thing that I'd discovered. And I think uh, it has this really MS-DOS look to it. It runs in DOSBox. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you basically do the equivalent of like DIRW or whatever, you know, to find out what's what you, you're carrying on you. And yeah. it has that sort of font I recognize from my dad's old Viglan, which had sort of WordPerfect. It was the word processing package, you know, and maybe that, that freeware game where two gorillas threw bananas at each other, um, which is a classic in its own right. But it has that sort of the, the blackness of the computer screen is not the blackness of a dungeon. It's the blackness of a computer screen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, There's nothing is being rendered here. Yeah. And when the, with the, 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 um, when the, the the dungeons created, they're these sort of they it's all ASCII and it's really quite beautiful in its own way. And weirdly, we had just this is really boring, but it was actually quite fundamental to my appreciation of this game. Is during lockdown, I don't know if you've been doing anything similar, but we've been sort of build, buying slightly nicer furniture for the house. Sort of second, it seems everyone is selling quite nice secondhand mid-century furniture on on Facebook. <laughs> I should point out I live in Brighton, so um, but yeah, I live in a, a bath where there are just like uh, so many antique stores that they like most of them are either drug fronts or absolute <laughs> follies. Uh, so there's there's always a cheap, lovely mahogany table. Oh, so, so we bought this. I've always wanted a bureau because my stepmother had a bureau yes. and it had a secret compartment in it oh i want one of those and oh god it was so exciting the day we found it we it was, long story i won't bore you with it here but anyway um but so i so a person in the the small sort of suburb i live outside brighton was selling a bureau and i i bought this bureau and and you can lock the top the top sort of folds down and it's like a desk but then you can close it up and lock it which is great if you were a freelancer I imagine because you can see like you know, fuck you work and kind of lock it away and for the, on every Friday evening or whatever. But um, there was something about Rogue and these sense of these different sort of private spaces in this bureau, sort of the different drawers and maybe the secret compartments. There aren't any in mind, but maybe they're just really secret. Um, and there's something about sort of locking this workplace away at the end of the day really made me think about Rogue and the way. So in, in Rogue, one of the weird little gimmicks of the way it's, it, it presents itself on screen is that the borders of each chamber is brown, these sort of two brown bars. And I was like, God, it really it, it's almost like moving through this sort of antique furniture. And I, I don't know. That's completely, obviously, a meaningless, stupid thing to think. But for some reason, it captured that sense of different little secret worlds, sort of grottos. And I think uh, that was what I needed. I was completely in. And then the other thing I discovered after that was that one of the button, you, you find a couple. So Rogue, you know, you're an adventurer. You're going through these caverns and you're trying to get further you're trying to work your way down so each map you're basically trying to find the staircase that leads you down and then eventually you get to the bottom you get this treasure and then you're trying to find all the staircases that lead you back up again i've never got that far but what was really uh, so the map draws itself as you explore it was yeah it was like moving through these different chambers finding these secret places but 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 what's really interesting about the way that it's, it's all done with ascii is it's so rich the the, the ascii sort of visual language is so incredibly rich so if one level it loads it up and the green dots which provide the sort of background the floor of each room if they don't stay with you after you've moved over them you know that it's dark there you're moving through Mm. this sort of darkness and then it starts finding you start finding levels where the, the 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 corridors just end you know they they sort of you track you track out out of a room and you disappear for a few miles and there's the corridor doesn't it just stops and then i discovered there's this button you press s and it's searching for sort of secrets so you walk oh. along these corridors kind of pressing s the whole time and you're kind of knocking on the uh or you can imagine like knocking on the walls sort of looking for hollow yeah yeah, yeah. and funnily enough i've just been reading um i appreciate i've been talking for a very long time by this point so i will give you a i will stop in a second but um i've just been reading simon callow's third book about orson wells and he talks about this stage show orson wells put on of moby dick and you're like how could anyone do a stage show of moby dick it's completely crazy but what he did was he did a stage show that was about a bunch of sort of 19th century actors rehearsing moby dick with no props and you imagine you have to imagine the whole thing so even though it's theater and you go and it's not like radio 
you're, you're, you're watching these people with no props and you're imagining the whole thing. And apparently it was incredibly rich for people when they went, they really felt they saw the whole, you know, the whole drama of Moby Dick. And I think Rogue has that kind of pared downness that the drama is really vivid because of it. You know, you're, you're, all of your enemies are letters of the alphabet. So you'll walk into a room, there's an H, and you're like, oh, shit, it's a hawk. <laughs> but all it is really is an H. But sort of the way that, this sounds ridiculous, but the way the H stands still until you get close to it is far more exciting than any kind of animation they could have done. Do you know what I mean? It says everything. Yeah. It's simul- so, so even though none of this is original, people must be sort of rolling their eyes, but I, it, was, it was fresh to me. I saw it afresh, is that even though it's so abstracted, it allows them to simulate things really richly. And it made me think I should probably go and play Dwarf Fortress. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what kind of connects the like the Orson Welles at play and um, and Rogue there is that there's a sort of an extra layer of interpretation between what the initial idea is and what you know the actual player or viewer experience is. So the idea that uh, in Rogue you're going through dungeons and you're exploring and discovering things, but it's done via letters in the alphabet. Um, and then in this other, and uh, in Orson Welles' play, like it, it's done through the meta filter of, uh, you're not seeing the actual story, you're seeing people rehearsing the story. I think there's something that almost frees up the mind about that to let you in- engage your imagination a bit more. I don't know, like, I'm just I think kind that's of playing with that thought. I think that's really true, actually. And I think there may even be a, another level to it. I'm probably going to make an idiot myself here, but like I play rogue and I play on my, my mechanical keyboard because it's the only, it's the only honest way to play it with those really clicky. <laughs> I've got the loudest. Is it the reds, which are the loudest? Yeah. Ones? I've got the loudest keyboard in the world. I've got worry. the one which they actually say like, don't use this for playing games. Just use this for typing. If you're a weirdo and like, and, um, but yeah, they're so, it's so beautiful. That hollow sound, the sound of the 1980s. And mm. there's something about playing a game like Rogue, which has such a reputation that when you're playing it, you're, you're often slightly outside of yourself playing Rogue. Do you know what I mean? You're playing, playing Rogue some of the time. So it's almost like this sort of nest of tables or whatever. But uh, I'm really big on the furniture thing for today for some reason. This is middle age, isn't it, Tom? So <laughs> what's next? I just really hope I never become interested in wine. If I can get through life without becoming interested in wine, I'll be all right. But um, oh, it's too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there is something really interesting about learning this game and le- like, le- like br- I love bringing up the, uh, the, there's one button you press and all of the, in- all of the possible instructions in this game come up and they're all letters. And like there's lowercase Q means lowercase Q is quaff and uppercase Q is quit. Um, and there's sort of two versions of W for like wearing something or, and, and zapping people with spells and all these things. And there's something about the sort of arcane, the fact that you can master this old, slightly arcane game you can actually master it and make it. You can go through that first barrier quite quickly. That one of like, oh, I'm playing rogue and I'm having fun. And after a while, it just becomes like I'm doing this thing. I'm I'm going through these these um, these worlds. And I, I I think that's really like an almost like another layer that surrounds certain games. That's interesting. I wonder. If, so, do you get that sense because rogue is such an iconic and influential game that you know as as part of playing it you're also sort of taking a scholarly interest in the thing uh, and how influential i think that's what i probably felt would have happened but actually what happened was i felt that there was this lineage that i had missed out on because i was born in like i was born in uh 78 um but that lineage of like being a an American um, university in the seventies or early eighties. And it feels like it's very vividly, you're back amongst those people when you play this game, right. you know what I mean? You're back in the yeah. shared computer center and there's sort of Cheetos and maybe someone's put Hawkwind on or something like that. <laughs> and um, it does take, it transports you to this very vividly imagined universe, which is actually not part of the, game it's just sort of on the coattails of the game your sort of idea of where it was first played you know how like in uh uh, uh stranger things it's not just that they play dungeons and dragons it's that they play it in this kind of beige plaid wooden basement do you know what i mean and the basement yeah. is actually 
super important and like the, the that kind of beige plaid that all furniture had in the 80s and the kind of crap wood awnings that houses had in the states that's all part that's as much of the setting as sort of goblins and and ghouls and everything like that and i feel yeah, like right. rogue brings so much with it because of its iconic if i was more intelligent i probably would be looking at like the design and how I, it certainly does that thing which i think all I don't know what you think about this, but I, I feel like all roguelikes, what they're really asking, what they what what unites them over permadeath or you know random generation, what unites them through these things rather than because of them, is that they just they ask you to commit. All of these games say like just here's what you've got, here's what your luck is like this time, and just commit, just see it through, go as far as you can, and that's why Hades is a roguelike and why you know, Spelunky is a roguelike and why Below, that not very good capybara game, is a roguelike. It's because they, they all share that thing of just like, they tell you to commit and to see it through. They're not cruel. They just want to get the best out of you. And it's, it's right also, there in Rogue. It's right there in Rogue. Do you know what I mean? There's also just enough suffering yes. to make it worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, a, a weird thing to say. Oh, but. no, it's it's the, like, you know you're talking to British video game journalists when it's just, just <laughs> there's just enough suffering. <laughs> I crave it. I crave it. You know what? I was enjoying so much, I undid my Silas belt or whatever it is that they wear in them. <laughs> I've only seen the, uh, you know, Dan Brown movie. I'm not I'm not having a go at Opus Day or whatever. But yes, um, it, it, it's true, isn't it? It is that sort of, the suffering makes it real. God, I sound really terrible there. That's what cult leaders say, isn't it? <laughs> it I mean, <laughs> Are, are we all? Are we all a cult in the rogue likes? Is that what this is? I don't think so. But it's about um, it's about consequences, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Like you, you have to lose some progress or lose something to make anything worthwhile in those games. And that's why they are so worthwhile. It's why Spelunky is just so so worthwhile. It's that you never you're never wasting time when you're playing Spelunky. You always get something. You always sort of learn something. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I think, but it's 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 true of rogue. It's true of rogue. You know, it's got that feel. It has its own its own pace. It's very brisk because it's mainly key. You know, keystrokes. You can just keep ramming yourself against an emu that's going to kill you until it kills you. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? So you can zip through this game like nobody's business, and then it very briskly brings you up your tombstone. Sort of the great sort of game epitaph. The game over screen is a tombstone, and it um, yeah, it's really. Oh, I, I know I've said just the things that everyone says about Rogue, but I think you, uh, I, I didn't expect to be able to experience them. Do you know what I mean? I thought I was always going to be at that slightly academic remove, not an academic in terms of understanding it, but an academic in terms of being a little bit uh, apart from it. I thought it was one of those games that's always going to be under glass to me. But for some reason, the Steam mm. version is just spectacularly engaging. I cannot stop playing it. That's really fascinating because, I mean, I've had the opposite response to for example games like the original XCOM uh which is obviously like a, a brilliant game uh maybe with Julian Gollop who's a, a lovely man as well um and playing that now just in terms of the sort of because that's a uh I'm gonna use some annoying terms onboarding <laughs> like tutorial systems uh, teaching you like uh, how it works yeah it was just a different world in uh back then yeah, and so like I find it unplayable now, but I find it really fascinating that you you've discovered. Do you think you've discovered something different from Rogue that you returning to it than you did when you initially played it? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I th I think I could probably answer that question forever or try and answer it forever. But I think one of the things after I finished it for the first evening, I realised like I was literally just coming back to this to see where a lot of things began. I think it was that simple. Hmm. It's just like, oh, I wonder what, where, you know, I wonder what it was like. I wonder how the original game handled this, or I wonder whether this was in the original game, or blah blah. So blah. Like a kind of architectural, yeah. You know, and then when you're playing it, I had I realized I hadn't thought about that at all. I hadn't thought about uh, that those sort of um, strands of history that began there. You're just completely. It's gripping. It's really gripping. It's it is like weirdly like 2001 in the cinema. Do you know what I mean? It's this thing hmm. which for whatever reason, it just absolutely, it, it was the perfect time and place. It just grabs me, but it will not let go. And uh, I, I, it's one of those things I'm going to be tapping away at probably for the rest of my life. Um, and it, yeah, it's really, I don't know. It's actually, this is a terrible thing to admit. Spelunky 2 has come out, which I love. 
and I think is wonderful, but I'm playing rogue. And I mean, what could be the more, <laughs> what could be the more hipster take than that? <laughs> that you know, oh, actually, you know, I'm playing rogue at the moment. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's true. You know, I'm drawn back to this, the source. And I think partly it's because it's so new to me, but also there is some weird dusty magic there that is just absolutely, you must you must you must play it and like i want i want to know what you think about it i want to know what what all of the uh, the crate people <laughs> you probably don't like being called the crate people <laughs> nah it's fine being called worst <laughs> but yeah i'd love to know what everyone thinks about it it's one of those yeah, things i want i just want to ask people what they what they make of it yeah i think it's fascinating to go back to old games like that and also i think we've only just recently as an industry moved into a space where you do have games that are almost relics like that mm because uh, given how long games have existed, um, particularly the most formative games in that era, a lot of people like me uh, have not played them, and yet I enjoy the spoils, the, the innovation. I, I wonder, like, we talked about Spelunky, which is such an obvious follow-up to it, but um, it's such a different sort of rhythm to mm. Rogue. I wonder if, if there are any like modern games that you think actually get closer to the original appeal of Rogue. Do you know what's weird is I wonder sometimes about um, Diablo, which obviously is not a roguelike. Mm. I was thinking about that. Oh, yeah. Really? Because what I was thinking about, I remember talking, like, so this is a terrible name dropping thing, but years ago I met Max Schaefer, who works on the first Diablo, and he was oh, saying God. that really when they were doing Diablo, all they wanted to do was recreate Dungeons and Dragons the way they like to play it. And mm. it was all about hitting skeletons and getting <laughs> loot. And like literally, mission accomplished, you've made that game. <laughs> but they were saying that like the thing that they worked on more than anything was the amount of how I suppose this is onboarding, is the how quickly a player could load a game up, make a character, and how quick how short the period of time before they hit a skeleton. And in Diablo <laughs> it's something like thirty five seconds. It's not very yeah, long at awesome. all. And um Rogue feels the same way. And I might be saying that just because I know that the Santa Cruz students were, again, trying to recreate Dungeons & Dragons. They were sort of trying to create, recreate. They had been playing text adventures and mm. sort of me- mis- messing around with text adventures, but also with Dungeons & Dragons. And they sort of created something which is, is neither, but is sort of a bit of both. Because I suppose there is a text adventure in that it's constantly telling you what's going on. You know, It's a text adventure, but the text is like, you hit the emu, you know, or like the emu is yeah. really angry now. Um, but, um, which actually is better than dialogue in anything I've written. So, um, <laughs> but... Um, Why are the emus so mean? <laughs> but it, I, that's weird that you say that. I never probably would have put that together, but I do think... Um, Diablo is weirdly close for this one. And I, I think, you know, um, I'm probably wrong. The more I say that aloud, the more the more wrong I sound. I wonder, I think there's, um, uh, um, yeah, all right, let's 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 go to the hole. Let's go to the, uh, the, the, the wank thought hole. Um, I think- <laughs> I live in that hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I think there's an archetype in games of going down and burrowing. Uh, and it's going deeper into a world that applies also to Minecraft mm. and Rogue and Diablo that creates a similar type of, if not horror, but excitement. Yes. Um, dungeons capture that. The idea of just like going deeper and going down, knowing that the, the sunlight is further and further away. But, I think that's a powerful do, psychological thing. Do you know what, sorry to interrupt, but quickly, you're making me think of um, the best camp, the best mission in Halo. Uh, the silent cartographer is literally that. You're on a right. desert island and you go down inside and you go down, 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 and then you come up again. And that's the entire mission, but it's completely thrilling. I mean, there's some bobbins at the bottom that happens, but then you come back up again. <laughs> and there is something about going down and down and down. And at the end, at the, at the midpoint of the level, you're at the deepest point. You're thinking, God, you know, I am really deep <laughs> underground at this point. Yeah. And yeah. Then, I think you're right. I think, God, sorry. Anyway, continue. Please, sorry, I cut you off. But... No, I'm sorry, Drew. It's like, I, I think there's, um, there are certain patterns uh, in terms of storytelling that are in our culture inherently satisfying. And then you start getting into Campbell's hero's journey oh, yes. where a hero has to reach the low point in the middle and then come back up again. And it's called the inmost cave, isn't it? In some of those. That's, yeah, exactly. Which is interesting. Right. And yeah. I think that often like, I think video game geography can literally represent that in terms of the actual environments that you're 
playing into um even as you're just shooting aliens i think there's still a, a sort of background sense that you're getting f- into more and more danger more and more loneliness and then resurfacing having learned how to shoot aliens better <laughs> it is difficult it's a difficult balance because i think that can become really oppressive and in the best games it's sort of thrilling but never oppressive unless they're like horror games and they want to oppress you but i don't think a roguelike ever wants to it never wants to completely break your spirit does it It never wants to completely oppress you and i think um yeah no that's really that's super interesting i'd never thought about that my goodness makes me think i'm gonna reach for the oh the game journalist crutch uh, dark souls blight town yes oh absolutely is it, it's, there's so many examples of that oh, just going the fucking mines in half-life too as well that's right yeah and then it's it's that going into a dark place and coming back out again it, and feeling like you've it's prevailed such a relief when you come out of the mines in it's really powerful yeah and uh, have you played um have you played alex uh half-life alex uh not yet i don't actually have a, a pc that can run it oh my god <laughs> well it's extraordinary but what is really interesting is that by the by the maybe the other clever things they've done as well but by just the sheer nature of the h the the vr the hr headset i've been working in a large company too long uh because of the vr vr headset whenever you're underground you cannot wait to get out again and a lot of that game it's almost like sewing you're dipping underground and then coming back up again the dipping underground and it knows that it can't take you underground for too long because it's just too much but it's when you're underground, you're like, oh, this is exciting. And then you're like, no, actually, this is horrible. I need to get out of here. And um, yeah, it, again, it's that I never thought of this as something that games had to manage, but it really is. It probably That's right. I think it is. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, it's been very useful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We're just uh, sort of like shooting ideas around. But uh, yeah, I'd love to get like Schaefer or, you know, any any Valve designer on the podcast to ask them these things yeah so like do you actually think about this literally or is it that you just play it and then instinctively feel that this is too much pressure and you need to get the player out of a bad situation it's, and it's yeah. certainly a relief in rogue when you die do you know what i mean which sounds yeah it's it's certainly a relief that the whole thing is so brisk and you think um it's very much about how far can i get how much gold can i get it's never that serious and at least it hasn't been for me so far. And, you know, when you're 20 levels down and and I forget what I is, I is the ice monster. When the ice monster <laughs> is giving you a hard time, you know, you're really sometimes really quite glad to come back to the surface via death. And I, I think even, yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about that at all. But anyway, yes, yeah, sorry. That's not good radio, is it? Listening to someone have a sort of epiphany because of something someone else has said. But um... No, I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's nice to hear it in real time. It's awesome. <laughs> um, I, maybe the ultimate roguelike, uh, to be spurious, is it Ski Free, which I've been writing about recently for a Oh, my script. goodness. Um, <laughs> ski Free. Now, tell me, was that the – am I thinking of the right one? Is that the one which is on a Microsoft pack of some kind? That's right. It was bundled in with Windows I, like god knows how long ago i uh, think jen yeah. allen wrote a piece for us about that jen allen's a really wonderful huh. writer i don't know if she writes a piece again but she's a really um wonderful writer i think she wrote a piece on ski free she's very into those microsoft packs and oh, um, awesome. she's, she's sort of that's her perfect wheelhouse is the early days of um windows 3.11 and everything i would need to play that again did you play um yeti mountain on iphone I did not actually. Oh my God. That's really good. And it's got that sense of, um, it's very different, but again, it has that sense of just going so deeply into something mysterious. That's cool. Yes. I like it. It's an odd one. Check it out. That's really good. It's the reason like I've got ski free on the, on the brain because I'm writing, I've been writing a script about like the most terrifying enemies in games. Oh, And the most terrifying enemy in games for me is the Yeti that just, arbitrarily appears at any point during your downward ski run and ski free and just is faster than you can ever be and it will always get you and that's a kind of it reminds me of the um the ghost of death in spelunky and that kind of stuff oh, that you can't wow. escape the ghost so it's almost like a really really early example of uh, some of the kind of elements of roguelikes uh, but admittedly released after rogue
those final words, the recording cut out. Then, my PC crashed, and I thought I'd lost everything. Thankfully, I was able to dive into the mainframe and recover everything, like some twat from Tron. <laughs> Jarring end to a chat I greatly enjoyed with Christian Donlan, and that I hope to do another one soon. Do check out his writing on Eurogamer.com, a very good website about video games. Um, the normal pod will resume soon to deliver tepid takes on the excellent games arriving in 2021, a year that will very slowly get better for everyone, hopefully. The main pod and these bonus extra pods are supported by our valued Patreon backers. Uh, search for Quaint Crowbar on Patreon and you'll find us if you would like to throw us a few quid. Uh, but of course, in these pressing times, we completely understand uh, that might not be possible. Uh, for more CNC, you can visit CreateCrowbar.com where you can find links to our YouTube channel and our lovely, lovely Discord server. Until next time, I've given myself the giggles. <laughs> I like Tron, it's a good film. Thanks for listening, everybody.